Colossians chapter 4, and just find your way there. Put your finger on verse 2. That's the passage we're going to be looking at tonight. But before we dive into this passage dealing with the theme of prayer, let me voice a prayer for us. God, you are our good Father. We trust you. We love you. And we come to you this evening asking you to give us your Holy Spirit as we read the Holy Scriptures and as we consider our practices of prayer in in our lives as individuals and in our life as a church tonight. Would you do a work within us to make us a prayerful people? Would you draw us deeper and deeper into the Dependent desperation that prayer is to be in our lives as we navigate the world that is. God, I pray that you would capture our minds' attention and stir our hearts' affection so that we would be drawn to pray and to pray often and to pray about everything. And I ask God that as we pray, you would hear and that you would help and that you would respond in ways that you see fit, in ways that you will to be good for our lives and in ways that you will to be glorifying to your name and to your character in this, in this world. God, again, I ask that you would make us a prayerful people in Jesus' name, amen. Well, thank you for coming and spending your last evening of 2017 with us at this time and in this space. And as we get ready to close the book on 2017, I know there are many people that 2017 was a tough year for a lot of folks, and, and they're looking forward to turning the page and moving into 2018. And, and as I think about the transition between the years, moving from 2017 into 2018, the, my prayer as a pastor here with the, with the Hallows Church faith family is that I want God, as we, step into, as we step into 2018, I want God to take us deeper than we've ever gone before in our practices of prayer as a church. And this desire, this conviction, this burden, this, this hope that I have for 2017 is really woven into the fact that a powerful church is a prayerful church. And if we're going to really make an impact in this city for the glory of Jesus and the advancement of his kingdom, we can't do it apart from prayer. A prayerful church is a powerful church, but here's the challenge. If that is true, that means the flip side is true as well, right? A powerless church is what? A powerless church is a prayerless church. And so I want us to step into 2018 taking advantage of the gift that prayer is to us and for us and the mission that God has called us to here in this city at this time. We have a remarkable opportunity to magnify and to multiply the gospel through this city to the ends of the earth. We have an amazing opportunity to grow together as a faith family and to deepen our intimacy with our God and to make disciples and see other people's lives come to find joy in Jesus. But if we're going to do that, we have to follow in the footsteps of our Savior and we need to rekindle the practices and the rhythms that you see 
operating in the life of the early church in the book of Acts. And what I mean by that is this. When Jesus stepped into the world, he stepped into the world to establish his kingdom, to bring his redemptive rule and reign into the lives of many men and women all throughout the world. And as Jesus lived his life and he moved towards the cross only to, be, only to step out of the tomb uh, three days later in his resurrection, everything that he did, he did prayerfully. I don't know if you've paid attention to how closely to how much Jesus prays in the Gospels, but he prays a ton. He was one who gave himself to dependent desperation. He is one who communed with his Father regularly. And those who would trust in him, that first generation of Christians that would form the first church in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, they followed in his footsteps. Those who were discipled by Jesus and witnessed him praying about everything, witnessing him communing with his Father, they too would go and pray about everything. They too would seek to commune with the Father through prayer. So let me just give you a survey, just a brief overview of prayer in the life and ministry of Jesus, just to give you an idea of how central prayer was to who Jesus is and why he, was, why he faithfully did all that he did as he journeyed through this world. You consider the beginning of his ministry in Luke chapter 3, the moment when Jesus is baptized and as he's coming out of the water, the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. And we're told in, in that verse that as that was going down, he was talking to the Father, that he was praying in that moment. Then you consider Luke chapter 4, verses 1 through 15. It says that Jesus began his public ministry, his formal ministry, with four, by spending 40 days in the wilderness praying and fasting. There are other times in the gospel where he would withdraw from the crowds and he would even withdraw from his disciples so that he could spend some concentrated time in the wilderness talking to his father. You see this in Luke chapter 5, verse 16. Jesus also would pray all night just before choosing his 12 disciples, before making that big decision. I'm going to call these 12 guys to follow me intimately and in a way that nobody else would follow me in this world. I'm going to call these guys before making that decision. We're told that Jesus prayed all night long. Then you step into Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Jesus was praying alone just before he has an important conversation with Peter. And he asks Peter straight up, who do you say that I am? Or who do the people say that I am? And they have this conversation that leads Peter to a confession of who Jesus is as, as the Christ, the Son of God. Then 10 verses later, in that same chapter, just before Jesus would be transfigured, he takes Peter, James, and John, and together they go up onto the mountain. And it says in chapter 9, verse 28, that they did that so they might pray. In Luke 11, Jesus teaches on prayer, on prayer. We'll look at that passage in a moment. But even beyond Luke 11, you get all the way down to the ends of the Gospels, to the end of the Gospel. In Luke chapter 22, verse 32, Jesus takes some time to pray for Peter, knowing that some things were about to go south in his life. And he's going to pray for Peter that his faith wouldn't fail, even though he would soon fall. He would soon deny Jesus. He's, he prays for his friend. But then he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane and he spends some time talking to the Father about the Father's will, knowing that the crucifixion is right around the corner. He's not too stressed to pray. No, he's so stressed, he's so burdened by what, will, what awaits him that he's driven into communion with his, with his Father. And then you consider how the very last breath that Jesus would inhale from the cross in Luke chapter 23, verse 46 the very last breath he would inhale, he does so so that he might exhale another prayer. 
meaning that Jesus literally died praying. And you want to know why prayer was so prominent in Jesus' life? Well, I think we're cued into a reason in John chapter 5, verse 19, when Jesus would explain this to his disciples. He would say there that, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. How do you think the Son discerned what the Father was up to? Well, he discerned what the Father was up to because why? He spent time with the Father. He prayed to the Father. He communed with the Father. And he would say himself, look, I can't do anything apart from what I see my Father doing. So I need to dial into that frequency. And how does he do it? He takes time to spend in conversation with the Father, asking the Father to show him, asking the Father to guide him, asking the Father to provide whatever was needed for him to do what he entered the world to do. See, Jesus was a man of prayer. He assumed the posture of dependence frequently. And so that's kind of the theme in Luke's gospel. But what is interesting is as you move out of the gospel of Luke and you move into the book of Acts, The book of Acts was written by the same guy who wrote Luke. Luke wrote the book of Acts to tell the story of the early church. And when you run through the book of Acts, you see the same priority, the same practices at work in the life of the early church. And the early church was a powerful church. Why? Because they were a prayerful church. They endured much suffering in advancing the gospel. Why? Because they were walking closely with the Father, talking to Him constantly. Just consider some of these references. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. We're told that all of these, referring to the first group of disciples, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. Then you jump into Acts chapter 4, verse 24, and we are told that in response to hearing uh, their prayers, uh, basically they're praying for Peter and John's freedom because they were, in, they were in prison. We're told in verse 24 that they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made? And then they bust, they bust out into this, this incredibly gospel-centered, gospel-saturated prayer time. And they do it together. This is one of the things that I find very interesting that in contemporary Christianity, we love praying by ourselves, but we don't do as good of a job praying with one another. But one of the ordinary ways you see prayer at work in the book of Acts is Christians are praying together. They're not, they're not hiding from one another in that sense. They're praying together as a family. You get into Acts chapter 9, a woman named Dorcas um, uh, has died. And so, I'm sorry, her daughter had died and Peter steps up and he needs a miracle. So what does he do? He asks God for one. Acts chapter 9, verse 40, Peter put them all outside, told everyone to leave the room and he knelt down and prayed and turning to the body of the young girl said, Tabitha, arise. And as he said that, she opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Peter praying in that moment Acts chapter 12, verse 5, while Peter was in prison, uh, earnest prayers for him was made to God by the church. When their pal Peter was in jail, they prayed earnestly for him. And get into Acts chapter 13, verse 2. In order to commission this, anyone in ministry, to, to particularly Paul and Barnabas and them to go out and do the things that they were doing, the church would take some time to pray together. Acts chapter 13, verse 2, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. 
Then, as Paul and Barnabas went off on their mission, they started planting churches in various cities. Acts chapter 14, verse 23 says, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, in other words, they planted churches with prayer and fasting, they committed those churches to the Lord and prayer in that way. You get into Acts 16, 25. There, Paul and Silas are in prison. And listen to what they're doing. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. They were praying in that moment. You get into Acts chapter 20, verse 36. Just before leaving the church at Ephesus, we read that when he had said these things, Paul was telling them that he was leaving. He knelt down and prayed with them all. All that to say is that in the book of Acts, you see God's people praying about everything. That the primacy of prayer was, was as clearly evident in the book of Acts. And as you and I step into 2018, my hope and my desire is that prayer would become more prominent in our life and ministry as well. A powerful church is a prayerful church. A powerless church is a prayerless church. This is why I want to look at Colossians chapter 4 and just give you three thoughts on prayer as we step into this first week of the new year and we have some opportunities to pray together and I really want to end by kind of challenging you towards that end and stepping into some opportunities and some avenues to pray together and to pray for what God is going to do in our lives and in our church in 2018. But let me give you a few thoughts on prayer drawn from Colossians chapter 4. One of the things you see here in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul is telling the church at Colossae, would you continue steadfastly in prayer? He knows that this is an early church. This is one of the first generations of Christians. They received the gospel. The gospel began to grow in their midst. And as a result, they were a prayerful people. So Paul knows that they are a prayerful people. So in verse 2, he doesn't say start praying. He says continue praying. He says the gospel has taken root in your midst and it is producing fruit. It is changing lives. Don't take your foot off the gas pedal now. Keep praying. Keep pressing in to the Lord in prayer. And as we step into year six of our church plant's existence and we continue doing the things that God has called us to do in this city, it's imperative that you and I do not take our foot off the gas pedal, but we in fact just accelerate more and we press deeper into the practices of prayer as a faith family. So he says, continue steadfastly in prayer. And this is a phrase, uh, the type of thing that Paul would say elsewhere when he tells the church at Ephesus that I want you guys to pray without ceasing. I want you to be constantly praying. And every time he does that, he's drawing off a tradition that Jesus would lay out for his disciples in Luke chapter 11. In Luke chapter 11, the disciples are insecure about their prayer lives. They're not sure they know how to pray as Jesus prayed to the Father. So they walk up to him and say, Lord, would you, would you teach us how to pray? And Jesus says, sure. And he lays out the Lord's prayer, but then he ends the Lord's prayer by going into a parable. And it's an interesting parable. So hold your spot in Colossians chapter 4 and turn over to Luke chapter 11. Turn back to Luke chapter 11. We'll take a look at this parable real quick. Continue steadfastly in prayer. That's what Paul has just written. And it's coming out of this tradition, this practice, this teaching that Jesus gave to his disciples. Luke chapter 11, check it out in verse 5. And Jesus said to his disciples, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I I cannot get up and give you anything. Verse 8, I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his 
persistence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Now this is a, this is a surprising parable. It takes a turn that you and I might not initially expect. Here you have a story where two friends and, and one guy goes to his friend's house because he needs food. Some guests have showed up. He doesn't have enough food in the cupboard to feed them. So he goes over to the neighbor. Hey, can I loan some bread? The guy's like, no, we're asleep. My kids are asleep. Stop making racket. Stop bothering us. Go home, go to sleep. We'll talk again in the morning. But the friend kept pressing in, presumably. And then it gets to the point where he is awarded bread. But why is he awarded bread? In the end of the parable, Jesus is very explicit about this. The guy receives bread not because of his friendship. He receives bread because of his persistence. He is awarded food in that moment, not because of the relationship he shares with the giver of the bread. He gets food in that moment because he presses in, he persists. In a sense, he annoys his friend into submission. I'm going to bother you until you give me what I need. Which, in fact, you think about it this way. I'm going to bother you until you give me what's needed to be a blessing to someone else. And you think about Colossians chapter 4. Continue steadfastly in prayer. And the first thought about prayer I want to put before you is that God rewards persistent prayer. God rewards persistent prayer prayer, a prayer that says, I'm not going to stop seeking. I'm not going to stop asking. I'm going to pray, pray, pray for God to give me whatever I need to benefit and to bless those around me. Continue steadfastly in prayer. God rewards persistence in prayer. And I don't know if this strikes you as irreverent. Essentially, I'm telling you, in your prayer life, try to be as obnoxious as you can to your God annoy him with your requests. And it may surprise you because it does sound irreverent, but I think this is precisely what Jesus is telling us to do in Luke 11. And I think he's drawing from a tradition that is found in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 62, you have this moment where the Lord is talking to the people of Israel. And listen to what he says. Isaiah 62 verse 6. God says, on your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen all the day and all the night. They, will, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest. And that's a euphemism for those who pray. You who put the Lord in remembrance, you who are calling God to act, give yourself no rest. Be persistent. But then in verse 7, and give him, referring to the Lord, and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. He's saying, give God no rest. Keep praying, keep persisting. Annoy God, so to speak. God is inviting his people to bother him in prayer. And I think this is one aspect of prayer that is sorely lacking, not only in our lives, maybe in our church, but just in contemporary Christianity today. We'll pray for a little while about something really big. But God here is saying, look, I want you to pray for a long while about everything that is big. I want you to persist in prayer. I wanna, I'm going to invite you to bother me. George Mueller was a guy who back in the, I believe it's the 19th century, he started an orphanage in Bristol, England. And his entire life, it's an interesting story. I would encourage you to read his biography if you really want to see someone's prayer life in action. And he, he prayed constantly for God to meet the needs of the orphans in the orphanage and 
And he put himself and put the orphanage in situations that would really require God to come through in some radical ways. There were, there were moments when they would have no food in the kitchen, but he wouldn't tell anybody about his need. Instead, he would gather the orphans around a table and they would sit down and pray together and they would thank God for food that they had not yet received. And then later that day, some bizarre things would happen. A, a bread cart would show up outside, somebody trying to move bread from one location to another and something would go wrong and they couldn't get the food to where they thought it was going. And so they would knock on the door of the orphanage and say, hey, here's this bread. We can't do anything with it. Will you take it? And George just thank, thanks God, takes the food like it's no big deal, walks in and feeds his kids. But this is a guy who understood persistence in prayer and listened to the indictment that he made of Christians in his generation. And if we're not careful, we can fall into this same indictment as well or under this same indictment as well. George Miller would say the great fault of the children of God is that they do not continue in prayer. They do not go on praying. They do not persevere. Then he says if they desire anything for God's glory, they should pray until they get it. If we desire anything for God's glory, let's pray until we get it. God rewards persistence in prayer. And God is far better than us in this regard I get annoyed when people ask me the same thing over and over and over again. I, I get impatient when my kids pester me with their requests and their needs. But God's not like me, thank God. God is much better than me. He's much more kind than me. He's much more loving than me. He's much more patient than me. And he invites us to bother him in prayer. So as we step into 2018, let's do so aware of the fact that God rewards persistence in prayer. But not only does he reward persistence in prayer, God recalibrates perspective through prayer. And this is important, especially if you're going to persist in prayer. You need to understand how God recalibrates perspective through prayer. Check it out, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, paying attention to your prayer life, praying mindfully, praying thoughtfully, praying attentively with thanksgiving. And so here you get this dynamic that God uses prayer to recalibrate our perspective. When I was a kid, one of my earliest memories was playing in a sandbox. And another kid came into the sandbox and he grabbed a handful of sand. He just threw it in my face. Just splattered my face with the sand. Got in my eyes. I couldn't see. I started crying. My, my perspective was distorted. My, I couldn't see. I was disoriented. I couldn't get out of the sandbox. And so I just kind of stumbled and bumbled just crying in the sandbox for uh, what felt like forever until eventually I just sat down and I just started crying out my dad's name, saying, Dad, Dad, Dad. And my dad was close enough to hear me. And so he came and he picked me up out of the sandbox and he brought me to a water fountain and he took some water and he splashed it on my eyes and he began to remove the sand from my eyes so that my perspective, my vision could be cleared up again. Well, there's a sense in which God uses prayer to recalibrate our perspective as we are journeying through a fallen world. There are times in our lives where life just kicks sand into the eyes of our faith and we no longer see God as, as we once saw him or we're no longer experiencing God in ways that we once experienced him. There's things that, that are going on in our lives that have disoriented us and we don't quite know what to do and, and what we're being told here with this idea of being watchful is that in those moments, don't, don't keep stumbling and bumbling trying to find your way through. Instead, stop. Be still. Sit down. Cry out. Your God will hear you. 
your God will hear you. Be watchful. Pay attention. Understanding. Understand not only who your God is, but what your God wants to do for you and that he's given you a gift of prayer to to bring about his good for you. And so God uses prayer to recalibrate our perspective. This this word watchful, it's this idea of a, a sentry standing guard outside of a camp and he's paying attention, looking for threats, looking for anything that might come upon the camp to disrupt things, to disorient things, to attack things. He's saying, I want you to be watchful. I want you to be mindful, knowing that it's possible for sand to be kicked up into the eyes of your faith. So pay attention, be watchful, pray with thanksgiving. And in so doing, allow God to recalibrate as often as necessary your perspective so that you can see God clearly and you can trust God fully. And another dynamic of this word, being watchful, it reminds us that prayer isn't a mindless exercise. Prayer is something where when you sit down to talk to God or maybe you're walking and you're talking to God, you do so consciously. And you want to think well about who the God is that you're talking to. You want to think well about what God desires for you and for others as you're praying. You're being watchful with thanksgiving. You are considering his character. You are considering his will and his purposes. You're considering the types of things that Jesus would tell his disciples to pray about. In that same text, in Luke chapter 11, when the disciples ask him, will you teach us to pray? What's what's the first line out of Jesus' mouth? He says, okay, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Pray with an awareness of the holiness of God. Pray with an awareness of the attributes of God. Pray with an awareness of the character of God, which is what the name there represents. But then he would go one step further. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, focusing on God's character. He would go one step further. Let your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I want you to harmonize heaven and earth. I want you to showcase what life looks like when Jesus is in charge. And so I'm gonna pray for that purpose to be realized regardless of what circumstance or situation or moment that I'm in. That's what I desire. That's my perspective. I want your character. I want your kingdom. That's what I'm going after in prayer. And so we don't wanna lose perspective on this because it's, it's, God uses prayer to recalibrate our thoughts so that we begin to think more in line with these realities. But here's the practical guidance on that. The only way that can happen is if you are praying in light of that which God has told you in the scriptures. That that we pray to God in response to what God has revealed to us in the scriptures. Earlier in Colossians chapter 3, verse 26, Paul would tell the church at Colossae, I want you to I want you, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Inhale the word of Christ. Take it in. And then when he shifts into chapter 4, that's when he says, now start talking to God. Continue praying. Well, what are they going to be praying in light of? They're going to be praying in light of the word of Christ that is inside of them. The word that they're taking in, that they're breathing in, that's what they're going to exhale to God in prayer. And as that is going on, God is recalibrating our perspective, reminding us of who he is and what he is like, and reminding us of what he desires to do for us and through us in the world that we're walking through. So God recalibrates perspective through prayer. Now, there's an aspect of our perspective that I want us to think about in light of the book of Colossians. If you turn back to Colossians chapter 1, there's, there's a moment or there's a passage there where Paul is 
kind of giving the church at Colossae one of the loftiest pictures and portrayals of who Jesus is and what God wants to do in the world right now. And it is found in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. And here, Paul is talking about the supremacy of Christ or the importance of Christ. And he's saying, when we pray, we should pray in light of the supremacy of Jesus. Check it out, verse 15 in Colossians chapter 1. There it says that Jesus, all the he's there refer to Jesus. I'll just fill it in for us. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. This is the perspective I want you to have. For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything, Jesus might be supreme or preeminent. For in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Jesus to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth in heaven, making peace by the blood of Jesus' cross. So Paul kind of lays that out at the beginning of the letter, and as he moves through the letter, he's, he's trying to show the Colossians what life is like when you live in light of this reality, with an awareness of the supremacy of Jesus. And then when he gets to the end in chapter 4, verse 2, and he's like, okay, now continue steadfastly in prayer. Be watchful. Pray with thanksgiving. Know where Jesus is and know what Jesus is up to right now. Recognize that when you pray, you're praying in light of or with the perspective that Jesus reigns supreme over everything. Now, when I say Jesus reigns supreme, don't get it twisted thinking, well, if Jesus is supreme or, or sovereign, then that must mean he's so high above everything that he's actually removed from anything. And so we think of the supremacy of Jesus as somehow meaning he's removed from life in this world. Therefore, he's not really concerned with our needs or our, our burdens or the things that we want to pray about. But when we talk about the supremacy of Jesus, we're not saying he is removed from all things. What we are saying is that Jesus covers all things. This is why you order a supreme pizza, right? You order a supreme pizza, all the ingredients go on the dough, and, and they fill up the space, right? You shouldn't be able to see any dough, and really, a good one, you don't want to see any, you just want all the ingredients, all the pepperoni and sausage and everything on there to fill up and to cover everything on the pizza. That's the idea when you think about the supremacy of Christ. You're thinking about one who reigns supreme. He covers everything. And when you and I pray and we begin, our perspective is recalibrated and we are tuned into that reality, every time we pray, what are we doing? We are summoning the supremacy of Christ in everything that we're praying about. We are asking God, God, showcase the supremacy of Jesus in my friend's life who is sick right now. God, showcase the supremacy of Christ by, by bringing provision to my friend who doesn't have a job anymore. God, showcase the supremacy of Christ by moving in this way or moving in that way. Would you do for us what is needed and showcase the supremacy of Christ in whatever, whatever it is you're praying about? So that's the perspective that Paul wants the Colossians to pray in light of. And I think that's the perspective you and I should pray in light of as we step into 2014. You look back at the passage of Colossians chapter 4 and you see a few things kind of point out, pointed out that remind us of the supremacy of Christ. 
You consider the fact in verse 3 that, that Christ reigns over every circumstance. Check it out, verse 3. Paul says, at the same time, would you pray also for us, referring to him and whoever was with him in prison, saying, he's praying that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. He's saying, look, I'm in jail, but I know good can come from this, so would you pray that I'd have an opportunity to tell people about Jesus? How can he do that unless Christ reigns supreme over that circumstance, over that situation? And so when we summon the supremacy of Christ, when we pray in light of that perspective, we're saying, Jesus, you reign over every circumstance. Whether that circumstance is good or bad, whatever the case may be, you are still supreme. You still cover it. And so I'm going to ask you to cover it in a way that would bring you great glory and other people great good. I'm going to pester you until you do so. If we desire anything for the glory of God, let's pray until we get it. And here Paul is wanting an opportunity to share the gospel. And he's praying for an opportunity when he does begin to share the gospel that he would do so with power, that he would be able to make it clear because he knows that Christ reigns over every circumstance. You go one step further and you understand verse 5 where Paul tells the church, now conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders. And you think about how Christ reigns supreme over every person. Here, Paul is telling the church to conduct themselves wisely toward outsiders. Why? Because Christ reigns supreme over every person on the planet. Whether that person is a part of the church or not, Christ reigns supreme over everyone. And the church has a mission to go towards those who are not conscious of the fact that Jesus is king, aren't conscious of the fact that Jesus is savior. And so as the church moves towards outsiders, they're praying, okay, would you give me wisdom so that I might conduct myself in a wise fashion as I move towards people who are far from you? So you have this idea that Christ reigns supreme over every person. Now, there's an, there's an implicit truth here in verse 5, and it has to do with what the church is. You see, sometimes in America, we get a bad understanding of what church is, and we define the church, or we, somebody, you ask somebody on the street, hey, what is, what is church, or what is the church? And they'll likely say, well, church is the place people go, on, go to on Sundays. And usually the people who are going there are Christians. It's just what Christians do. It's that place, and it has an address, it has a building, it has a structure. But here, Paul is talking to the church, and he's talking about the church not as a place people come to. He's talking about the church as a group of people who go out. That the church is people who are living on mission, who are looking to showcase the supremacy of Jesus in their lives as they move towards those who are not yet a part of the church. And so as we move towards outsiders, we do so with an awareness that Christ reigns supreme over every person. He loves everyone, and he wants us to engage everyone in ways that would bring his kingdom to bear, but then you go one step further, conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders, making the best use of the time, and you consider how Christ reigns supreme over every moment. He covers every moment. Make the best use of the time. He's saying, I want you to live in the now. And I think the secret to living in the now and making the best use of the time, that is redeeming the moments of your life, he, he's, he's wanting, I think the secret to that is remembering that Jesus died to give you and I something called eternal life. And eternal life, by definition, is, a, is atemporal. It is eternal. It is not temporal life, right? 
And so if we have eternal life, what does that mean for us except we've been set free or we, from being stuck in the past? So if there's a, something in your past that you think is bogging you down and is preventing you from being a prayerful person or preventing you from engaging outsiders in a wise fashion and moving forward in your relationship with Jesus, understand that you've been given eternal life in Jesus and as a result, you've been set free from the past. But then at the same time, because you have eternal life, you're not necessarily waiting on something extraordinary in the future to make you happy. Everything you need to be a joyful person, everything you need to live a life of godliness, everything you need to engage God in conversation, you have right now. The full measure of God is dwelling within every Christian, every person who's trusting in the gospel. You have the Holy Spirit. You don't have to, you're not waiting on something in the future to round out your Christianity or to round out your relationship with God. No, you're living in the moment, making the best use of the time, saying, right now, I know God. Right now, I'm with God. Right now, I can talk to God, and that's precisely what I'm going to do. I'm not going to be stuck in the past, and I'm not going to obsess over the future. I'm going to be Everywhere present. I'm going to be present knowing that Christ reigns supreme over every moment. Then you go one step further. Christ reigns supreme over every conversation. In all the moments you have to have a conversation with another person, Christ reigns supreme over those conversations. And he's with you and he's available to you to say, Christ, would you help me speak words that would help the person I'm talking to? Listen to where Paul goes next. He says, making the best use of the time, verse 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person, so that you might know how to talk to someone in a way that is charming, in a way that is witty, so that you might be whimsical in your conversations with those who are far from God. In other words, a Christian should be able to have ordinary conversations, <laughs> Christians don't need to be weird people who can only talk about the Bible or weird people who can only talk about abstract theological concepts. Christians should be some of the most conversant people on the planet. Christ reigns supreme over every conversation. So if you think, well, I don't know if I can pull that off. I don't know if I can talk to people in ways that, are, that can connect or engage. Well, what do you do? Well, you pray. You pray in light of the supremacy of Christ that he reigns supreme over every conversation. So when you step into a conversation, you're saying, Jesus, help me. Holy Spirit, give me words that would connect with this person. Help me know how to talk to them in ways that they'll understand, in ways that will build a relationship and a bond between us. Let my conversation be gracious and seasoned with salt. That's a powerful image. It's a powerful phrase when you consider the image. There's a, there's a phrase that is true, that you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. That, that is true. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. But anyone who's ever worked with horses knows that you can give a horse salt, right? You can't make him drink, but you can give him salt. And what will that do? That will whet his appetite and make him want the water that you've brought him to. Well, there's a sense when we engage outsiders in conversations about Jesus or in conversations that establish relationships that are uh, gospel-saturated we can't force anybody to put their faith in Jesus. We can't force anyone to love the Savior, but we can feed them salt. We can whet their appetites by showcasing the supremacy of Christ in our own lives and by living out the, the joy and the freedom and the life that Jesus died to provide us with. And we're feeding them salt. They're, they're getting thirsty. They're, they're, and they begin, Lord willing, to want the things that have shaped your life or better yet, want the one who is giving shape to your life now. Christ reigns supreme over every conversation. So we want to pray about every conversation. God, help me, 
Help me connect with people. Help me to have conversations that form bonds and relationships that matter, form bonds and relationships that can have the potential of advancing your kingdom in this person's life. You know, a lot of times as Christians, we, we'll sit down with our Bibles and we'll have something called a quiet time and we'll, we'll get alone with God and we'll open up our Bibles and we'll begin to read the scriptures. And almost every Christian is taught when you sit down to read the Bible, you should pray before doing so. Before you read the Bible, you're asking God to help you understand the words that you're going to read. That's, how, that's one of the ways that we make disciples. We teach people to commune with God in those personal, private times. And we say, okay, before you read the Bible, pray so that you can understand it. But there's another prayer I want to kind of throw into your arsenal. I want you to pray before, you're reading the, before you ever read the Bible so that you can understand it in a life-changing way. But I also want you to pray when you pick up a newspaper and begin to read it. And I want you to pray as you're watching commercials. And I want you to pray as you're at the concerts. I want you to pray as you are watching sporting events. I want you to pray as you are interacting with the world around you. And what you're going to find yourself needing as a disciple that says, I need to pray so that I can understand God's word. But we also need to pray so that we can understand God's world. And when we begin to get understanding of the world around us and we're asking God, help me to understand where people are coming from to this. Help me to understand why this is so appealing to others. Help me to understand your word, your world. What that does, it gives you an opportunity to weave his word together in conversations that are taking place in his world. And you can connect in meaningful ways. Your conversation can be gracious and seasoned with salt. You can be prepared to have conversations that are reasonable and encouraging and appetite wedding. So you want to pray, God, help me understand your word. But you also want to pray, God, help me understand your world. Give me insight into the human condition. Help me to see people the way that you see them. Help me to feel what you feel for them so that I might engage in conversations that would be of use to people. All of this, everything that Paul is saying in this passage, he's saying in light of the supremacy of Christ that he has outlined in Colossians chapter one. And so when we pray, as we're aware of this, God begins to recalibrate our perspective. So one, God rewards persistence in prayer. God recalibrates our perspective through prayer. And then lastly, God releases his power as we pray. God releases his power in response to prayer. And so everything that we're being called to in this chapter, it is a life, it is a rhythm, it is a practice that we can't carry out on our own. Everything that we're being called to in this passage, we are being called to desperate dependency or dependent desperation. And when we persist in prayer and when our perspective begins to harmonize with God's perspective In reality, that's when I think his power begins to be unleashed. That's when he releases power in response to our prayers and we begin to see God do things that only God can do. My challenge to you this evening as we step into 2018 is I want you to pray for God to do things that in your mind seem to be impossible. I want you to persist in those kinds of prayers. I want your perspective to be fixated on the supremacy of Christ as you pray those prayers. And I want you to see and to savor the power of God being released in response to your prayer life. 
I want to see and to savor the power of God being released in response to our church's prayer life as we step into 2018 in a prayerful, prayerful fashion. There's one verse that the Holy Spirit seems to be really convicting me of over a lot lately, and it's the moment when Jesus would tell his disciples, look, you do not have because you do not ask. There are things that God wants to give his people. There are things that God wants to do through his people, but that he, in his sovereignty and in some mysterious fashion, has chosen to refrain from us until we ask for it. And so if you and I really have a perspective, Christ is supreme, covering everything, we want people to see it and sense it and to feel the weight of that, then we're going to start praying towards that end. And we're going to start asking for God to do the types of things that only God can do. And as we step into 2018, I want us to do so praying more than we've ever prayed before. Asking God to do things that only God can do. Asking him to do things that we have yet to ask him to do. There is a reality that some of us do not have because we have not been asking. So let's start asking. And there are three opportunities this week that I want to call you into in light of this. In light of this emphasis on prayer. Three opportunities I want to invite you into, and one of which many of you are already aware of, but you know that at midnight tonight, we're going to start 24 hours of ceaseless prayer. We're inviting disciples all across our expressions to sign up for an hour time slot, and they're going to have some unhurried, uninterrupted time to, to pray and to intercede on behalf of our church and to intercede on behalf of the city of Seattle. And so we're going to be praying through a prayer guide that we've written up and we're providing everyone with. And so if you think praying for an hour is intimidating and you're not sure you have the spiritual muscles really worked out to do that, if you utilize the guide that we've provided you in your worship guide tonight and you just kind of follow that through, you'll find that hour flying by. There's not been a year yet when we've done this when I've been able to make it through the entire prayer guide. And so if you haven't signed up for an hour time slot, let me encourage you to do so. There will be a computer in the foyer in the back for you to do that, to grab an hour and to join us in having 24 hours of ceaseless prayer, seeking to pray in 2018. But then the second opportunity we have to do this and to begin to catalyze a prayerful posture in the life of our church is this coming Wednesday night at 6.30. We're going to be hosting three prayer gatherings all across the city. We're going to host one in our North Seattle Expression, our West Seattle Expression, and then here in Fremont, we'll be hosting a a prayer gathering. And at 6.30, we're going to be be gathering in this space and to pray from 6.30 to 7.45, and we're going to devote that entire time to praying together. So tomorrow, we're going to be praying privately on our own. Wednesday, we're coming together and we're praying together. We want to be a prayerful church and we'll have an opportunity to do so. That also means that this week, if you're a part of a missional community, we're canceling those missional communities and steering them towards this prayer gathering. So MCs will not meet as regularly as they do. Instead, they're they're invited to take the time that they would devote to missional community to come here and to spend that evening with us praying for 2018 and trying to sense God's direction for our church together. And then the third opportunity I want to invite you into is I want to call some of you, and if not all all of you, if you desire, to join our prayer ministry team. Our prayer ministry team does two things primarily. They come early on a Sunday before our gathering, about 30, 45 minutes before the start of our gathering, and they take some time to pray together, and they pray for various needs in the life of our church, and they pray for the worship gathering that will soon take place. 
And they pray similar prayers that Paul is requesting here in Colossians chapter 4. Look, I need you to pray for me that not only that I'd have an opportunity to declare the mystery of Christ, but that I could do it clearly, that I could do it with effect and impact. And so there's a real sense where I and other pastors who preach and teach in our church, they need this prayer ministry team to intercede and to make this same request, help us to declare the mystery of Christ and to do it with clarity and impact and effect. And so if you're not a part of the prayer ministry team, let me invite you to sync up with that team. You can connect with John and myself after this gathering and we can point you to the folks who are, who are forming this team and who will begin to pray before every gathering, will continue praying before every gathering. But then in addition to praying before every gathering, the other piece to that is that the prayer ministry team is going to be trained and equipped to pray with the disciples during our gathering. So that over the course of our Sunday gatherings, we have needs that arise in our hearts. So somebody's going through something that we know about. Or maybe the Spirit just prompts something in you. Say, hey, go talk to so-and-so. They, and you go and you start a conversation. And then it opens up opportunities for you to pray with them. We, we want to begin to pray with each other on Sunday nights during our worship gatherings. And this prayer ministry team is going to be catalyzed to that end. They're going to be equipped and trained to approach people and to pray with people and to serve people in that way. And it's, become a, it's going to become a common, regular occurrence in life of our church. It, it shouldn't be weird when you see disciples praying in clusters in a room like this. It shouldn't be weird when you see people breaking off of what we're all doing together because they need to spend some concentrated time praying about something. To, that should be regular occurrence in the life of our church. And as we step into 2018, that's what we're going after. We want to become a prayerful Church, a prayerful church is a powerful church. And so let's, let's assume that posture together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you stir our hearts with a desire to be a prayerful people? I pray, God, that you would give us assurance and encouragement of, to know that you are a God who hears our prayers and that you are a God who responds to prayer and that you are a God who changes us in the midst of prayer. And so would you please, God, work within us in a way that would make us a prayerful people like never before. And I pray that you would do remarkable things in 2018 for the advancement of your kingdom and for your glory and for the good of other people. God, would you work Would you work in us and through us and all around us as we pray in Jesus' name, amen.